This week on Range, we have a really dynamic young organizer named Rosie Joe. She's not one of the founding members of Spokane Sunrise Movement, but one of its core organizers. They just did a climate rally around Earth Day, and uh, I was really impressed by everybody there. They were all young adults. Sunrise Movement, you kind of have to be. Connor could be in the Sunrise Movement because he's under 35, but I, don't, I, I could not be. So this is an exclusionary organization that hates old people. We'll talk about this in the interview. It's just really, really powerful to see you know young people, some of them who have been doing this activism work for about two years. The Sunrise Movement nationally is about two years old. The Spokane branch is about the same age. But then some some kids talking for the first time, you know. So anyways, it's a really exciting moment. And we're going to talk about all that stuff with her. But first, I wanted to contextualize how I feel. I feel a certain kind of way about where we stand as a nation and with the way our young people are stepping forward. So if you'll permit me to once again remind you that I'm the oldest possible millennial. I've actually said it several times now, enough that you might just want me to stop talking about it. Uh, like, why is Grandpa Baumgarten talking about being the oldest millennial again? Well, in this case, I think it's important to ground ourselves in the context we grow and live in, and it's germane to this topic. I've also said that generations are made up and with arbitrary start and end dates and don't really help explain much. And that's true too, but it's the closest thing we have for a shorthand about something that is very, very relevant, very true, and incredibly complicated. We are all products of our environment, And not just nature, nurture, how our parents raised us, or whether we're New Yorkers or Cornhuskers or Spokies, although those things all play into it. We are products of the moment we are born and what was happening in the world when we came of age, and in many cases continue coming of age through different phases of our life. Some of those historic events have tremendous tolls on people. There's this quote I love that begins, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. That's Karl Marx in the first chapter of the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte. My wife's grandmother was a child during the Depression and later in life had curtains literally disintegrate on the rods because she was too frugal to replace them. Countless ink has been spilled about children and screen time from cable guy lampooning the idea of the Lone Ranger as a babysitter to serious psychological articles debating whether your toddler should be allowed to have a smartphone. We are products of the macro level society and cultural moments we live through. And there's a lot of research suggesting that when teens and adolescents live through a depression or a war or a recession even, it changes society in a way that reverberates through that cohort's entire life. It changes our brain. I think a lot about how I have never lived in a time without Reaganisms being sort of the default. My friends who were born 15 years earlier remember the before time, and their response to that cultural hegemony is very different from mine. They either railed against Reagan or embraced him as a change agent, but they never saw him as the default position. There was always something before, something I've never experienced. For people my age and younger, Reaganism, neoliberalism, is all we've known. I don't want to speak for everyone, but for most of my life, it has been very hard to even imagine a moment like the civil rights era and LBJ's Great Society push. Vietnam aside, of course, we we all know exactly how it feels to get sucked into a war fought for greed and have both parties double down on its execution. But then going further back, trying to envision all the way to the New Deal feels like discussing the point at which mythology meets history. 
It's part of the broad left and even America writ large's collective cultural pride. And yet similar movements today are cast as utterly unattainable. It's like, yeah, I know Prometheus gave humans fire, but that was back then. We're too big or too diverse to do more fire now. It's how it feels when talking to people of a certain age, regardless of their political affiliation, about something like the Green New Deal. It's like, sure, we did that then, but we could never do it now. For all our capitalist patriotic zeal as a nation, there's at least an equal pessimism about how easily the whole project might explode or implode if we tried to make people's lives better. It's like, are we the richest nation in the history of the world, or aren't we? When it comes to the bellicosity of our foreign policy, we act like a world hegemon. When it comes to ensuring Americans lead decent lives and our kids and grandkids actually have a world to grow up in, we're more fragile than Finland. That argument has never made sense to me, but what was the alternative? Was there one? For the longest time, I think the answer was kind of no. But now let's skip a generation ahead to a group of people who not only don't remember Reagan... They might increasingly be too young to even remember Bill Clinton, which makes me feel even older than I am. It makes a weird kind of sense thinking about these kids, people under 30, why they would have so fervently loved a 75-year-old democratic socialist. Imagine a generation who missed the consumptive largesse of the 80s, which I definitely got a healthy dose of, and have only experienced the end of history 90s with Clintonian third-wave liberals piggybacking on Reagan's welfare queen rhetoric with a bipartisan bill gutting welfare, who have only seen the ramp-up of the drug war, mass incarceration, and the rhetoric of super predators, and maybe haven't even seen the ramp-up, but only witnessed its effects on the poor and people of color. Worse, imagine a generation who became self-aware after 2000 and have never known anything but unwinnable, unendable forever wars. And a forever war in service of what again? Certainly not freedom, so safety, or just oil. This generation is like, wait, oil? The single biggest contributor to the heat death of our planet? Why are we fighting for that again? I'm 40 and I've lived through five economic crises. I began my career at the exact midpoint between the dot-com bust and the housing bust. And because of that accident of history, I feel like I got the last halfway decent foothold into a labor market that is now clogged with boomers who can't retire, I read almost 50% of Gen Xers don't even have savings, so they're going to be working longer too. And therefore, all the generations after them are fighting for ever fewer jobs in career paths that almost always pay less, especially as a function of the cost of living, than they did 40 years ago. Is it any wonder, then, that the message of this old guy who had fought for civil rights in the 60s, trans rights in the 80s, and economic fairness for over 40 years in office, way ahead of his time, every time, would resonate with kids young enough to be his grand and great-grandkids in some cases. It's like the guy who kept fighting against the Reagan turn and the kids who have only lived with the destructive aspects of its wake see eye to eye because we're maybe now coming back from the collective delusion and fever dream that was the 80s through, you know, the end of Obama's presidency. It's the opposite of surprising for nearly two generations of people with unrelentingly bleak economic and ecological futures and no historical memory for something like the Red Scare to be like, wait, why do we not like Medicare for All again? Why not do a Green New Deal again? There's plenty of dissension about what the next move needs to be, but almost universal agreement that it can't be more of the same, right? That's how society moves. And I got to say, for the first time in my life, society is moving in a way that gives me like the faintest glimmer of hope. 
I'm not a political theorist, but it seems to me that whatever credit Joe Biden is getting for pursuing the most progressive domestic policies in close to 50 years should actually go to that movement and not even to Bernie, though he was clearly the lightning rod and not even to AOC or Ilhan Omar or the rest of the squad, people who are closer in age to the cohort that I'm talking about. Credit needs to go to the incredible groundswell that lifts those politicians up and is dragging the Democratic center left. But these young activists aren't content to just do that. There are serious conversations about whether the Democratic Party can even carry the movement that needs to happen. My guest today is Rosie Zhou. She's a graduating senior at Ferris High School and one of the lead organizers of Spokane's Sunrise Movement, a local chapter of a national organization of young people that describes themselves as, quote, a movement to stop climate change and create millions of good-paying jobs in the process. Two of the most striking things about this movement are both their clarity around the scale of ecological disaster that's looming on all of us. Their website has a massive doomsday clock with just over six and a half years left on it. And also, though, the holistic and inclusive nature of their organizing work. A previous generation of activists might have seen people jumping into an environmental action with a jobs message as diluting or pulling power away from the work that needs doing. These kids see it the exact opposite. The whole time I've watched the Sunrise Movement work from their beginning roughly two years ago to this climate strike they did, I believe, in 2019, to their Earth Day rally that just happened a couple months ago, and then hearing Rosie talk about that work, I couldn't help think about the the less-sided second half of that Marx quote I started with. I'm going to read it here real quick. So starting from the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living, he continues, and just as they seem to be occupied with revolutionizing themselves and things, creating something that did not exist before, precisely in such epochs of revolutionary crisis, they anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service, borrowing from them names, battle slogans, and costumes in order to present this new scene in world history in time-honored disguise and borrowed language. Thus, Luther put on the mask of the Apostle Paul. The revolution of 1789 to 1814 draped itself alternately in the guise of the Roman Republic and then the Roman Empire. And the revolution of 1848 knew nothing better than to parody. First, 1789, then the revolutionary tradition of 1793 to 95. In like manner, the beginner who has learned a new language always translates it back into his mother tongue, but he assimilates the spirit of the new language and expresses himself freely in it only when he moves in it without recalling the old and when he forgets his native tongue. It feels, I mean, we're, it's close, right? But it feels like we may be at that kind of a tipping point. Sure, we're still using the native tongue of terms calling back to the New Deal, the Green New Deal, stuff like that. But young activists are undoubtedly working on a new language and a new way of bringing people together in a way that feels, if I'm being honest, so much more powerful than movements I've witnessed so far in my life. So yeah, Rosie and I talked about Sunrise Spokane and about how this new generation of activists are doing things fundamentally different from their forebears, and possibly forging the spirit of a new revolutionary language while racing against time to save us from ourselves and save the world in the process. So yeah, no pressure. Rosie Show, Sunrise Spokane, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is range. Episode 36.
here today with Rosie Joe of Sunrise Movement Spokane. Rosie, thanks so much for coming on range. Well, I was going to say, this is in my script right after tennis practice, but it rained today, <laughs> so tennis practice got canceled. Yep. Appreciate you being here. Correct me if I got anything wrong. You are a graduating senior at Ferris High School, and you're one of the founding members of Sunrise Movement Spokane? I guess I wasn't one of the like original founders because the original two founders were um, Maggie Gates and Maddie Hartman. Okay. And um, they, yeah, they started it, but I'm now one of the hub coordinators for our hub. And a hub is basically just like the Spokane chapter of Sunrise. So yeah. you're one of the main coordinators of it. Yes. Cool. Mm -hmm. And Maggie and Maddie, did they both speak at the rally? Maggie did, okay. but Maddie didn't. No. Okay, cool. We got recordings of that. It was a pretty, it was a, we'll talk about that later, but it yeah. was a, it was a pretty powerful rally. Why have you at this point in your life started getting active in politics in general and specifically climate stuff? Yeah, well, I think at first when I joined, it was really because I just felt like I wanted to be a part of the movement that was, you know, of young people trying to solve the climate crisis. I had always known about climate change and it obviously just worried me a lot, like, you know, thinking about my future, um, about if I have children, like their futures. So that's really what compelled me to join Sunrise. And I'm so glad that I did. I think just generally why I'm so involved politically is because as a young person, I think the voices of young people really matter. And right now, a lot of politicians maybe don't really take young people seriously. And so I wanted to just show that as a young person, I have a voice. I, you know, care about all of these issues. And I just I just really felt like I had to get involved and almost like I couldn't just like sit on the sidelines anymore and watch. Yeah. Is it something you tackle like wholeheartedly and enthusiastically or do you feel like you wish you could be a little bit more of a kid? You didn't have to deal with this bullshit that adults created. Right. Right. I, uh, it's probably definitely a mix of both. Like sometimes I feel definitely like, you know, I should be just doing other things, like having fun, um, doing things that teenagers should be doing. Uh, other times I also feel that uh, it's kind of just very valuable for myself and I've grown so much through being involved in, in activism. And so, um, I think almost like it's a big part of my identity now. And yeah. I don't think that would have happened if, you know, these, <laughs> I guess these issues weren't existing. Right. And Sunrise Movement is a relatively young organization. It's like two years mm -hmm. old or longer. Yeah, I think it's about two. I think they really gained traction after the like sit-ins at Nancy Pelosi's office. I think that that was like two years ago or maybe three, but. It's very, very new still. Relatively recent. And why I think is Sunrise Nationally is also kind of a youth-led organization. So what of all the, you know, there's 350, there's like Greenpeace, all these legacy organizations, newer organizations, what made the people that wanted to create a hub of Sunrise pick that as the organization they were going to throw their weight behind? And then what made you sort of want to join? Yeah, so I think with Sunrise, everybody in Sunrise is 35 years or younger. So it's wow. you know, definitely um, very youth-led and youth-driven. And so I think like the, the founders of Sunrise in Spokane, they, they learned about Sunrise. And I think they really felt that there wasn't, you know, there's groups like 350. Those climate groups are kind of more like 
older, I guess, and well-established. And so they wanted a Sunrise Hub that could be much more youth-driven. And that's also why I really wanted to join Sunrise because I felt like, you know, other young people, I can relate to them more. We can just, mm, I just feel like more comfortable around them, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any element of it also that it's like adults don't listen to kids <laughs> and like, or, or what? Is there any yeah. of the, just like wanting to have your own thing, I guess? Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes if it's like organizations that are not specifically for youth, it can often turn into kind of just the adults taking over really and kind of just maybe disregarding voices of youth sometimes as well. So having organizations that are, specifically for youth, um, I think is, is really important. It also strikes me, and this is kind of off, I'm going, I'm riffing right now, but it was like, as I was listening to the climate, mm -hmm. um, that wasn't technically a strike. That was just a rally for Earth Day, yeah. right? So the rally the other week, it also struck me that like, these are your young leaders. Like mm -hmm. if you were, if you might've joined, maybe 350 would be different, but like in a more traditional organization, yeah. it would have been adults up there speaking. It wouldn't have been kids. Uh, some of you were incredibly seasoned speakers, including you. There were a couple that were a little rough. It was like yeah. maybe their first time talking. Yeah. So it struck me that also it was like insofar as it seemed like a really powerful way to just like hit the ground running and not have to like, you know, be in somebody's intern somewhere yeah. in a back room, you know, I don't know. Uh -huh. Does that strike you as like part of the motivation as well? Or, or yeah. maybe, maybe a night, a happy accident that came out of it? For sure. I think at that rally, we, we really wanted to uplift youth voices and so we had a lot of different youth speakers like you said some of them were kind of more experienced speakers and some of them that was their first time ever speaking wow. uh, like that in front of a crowd and so I'm I'm very glad that they had the chance to do that and um, yeah I'm just very happy with how the rally went I think uh, all of the young speakers were just so inspiring and um yeah, overall, I just I just really enjoyed that rally, and I'm glad we were able to do it. And you had just gotten vaccinated, so you were a little worried you were <laughs> going to be too sick to speak, but yeah, you got up there too. I um I thought that I would have effects, but I basically didn't have anything except for my arm was a little sore. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm so I'm so thankful for that. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. So in addition to being youth led, like, is there a literal focus? A difference in focus from other climate organizations or a difference in approach, a difference in rhetoric, a difference in, you know, language or organizing tactics for yeah. Sunrise? Like, how does it, how do you guys differ? I love to speak about this because, you know, again, this was a huge thing about Sunrise that really drew me in. So um, compared to other, you know, climate organizations, I really love how Sunrise is so like intersectional and they're just focused on looking at not just climate change, but just the entire, like all the other issues uh, that tie into climate change, like racial injustice, economic injustice, housing injustice, and really tackling those issues in a, in a comprehensive way that doesn't exclude you know any certain marginalized community so that's why i i really like that about sunrise and um i think more organizations should have that kind of intersectional lens because i truly don't think that we can deal with the climate crisis unless we address these other issues that are so prevalent in our country right now I want to talk about the intersectionality a little bit later because that was the thing that really struck me when I was listening to everybody speak. Mm -hmm. 
and not just how there were different speakers from different sort of places, but how there was a lot of overlapping intersectional language used between people, even though you could tell that, you know, you might be from Sunrise and different, there was a guy there from DSA. You were sort of like combining language in a way that was really, really powerful to me. Before we get there though, I wanted, so th that was the second of the two things that really struck me. And I wanted to kind of take them one at a time and spend some time on them, partially at the, the rally. But then I went on your guys's website today and what really hit me in the face was how quickly you guys talk about needing drastic change, like how quickly this and the scope of the change itself, but also how quickly it has to come. And then the thing on the website that really hit me was you have two counters on the website. One was counting down the number of years we have to get to zero emissions, which by your guys's count is six years, 249 days, 12 hours. And at this point, about 30 minutes after I looked at the website, 45 minutes, but then down to like literally the second. There's this constant ticker. It reminded me of the debt clock that used to be up on Wall Street when people were like worried about the deficit, where it's like there's just this constant clock running, right? You're always reminded of it whenever you're on the website. The second ticker is the percentage of the world's energy derived from renewables. And it's like calculated out to nine decimal places mm. and it's like 12%. So basically the, the message is we have a little under seven years to get a little more than like 87% more renewable you know, than we are. So it's extremely precise and kind of overwhelmingly ter terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, what do those numbers together mean for you and for the organization? You know, like you said, it is very terrifying to think about. To me, it just shows just how big the the problem is and how little time we have and um, just how far we are really from getting to where we need to be. And so I think a lot of people don't don't really realize just how pressing climate change really is. Uh, you know, they may think it's something in the distant future. But really, it's it's here already now. We're already seeing the effects of climate change. It's, you know, it's not even deniable at this point when you see wildfires getting worse every summer, winter storms like in the, the Texas one uh, that just was absolutely devastating, you know, sea levels rising. I think for Sunrise as an organization, uh, those numbers really just revealed to us why having these protests, having organizations like Sunrise is is so important because we need to keep fighting. We need to, to keep pushing for change and, you know, telling our, our politicians that they need to take this issue seriously or else we're not going to be able to, to fix it in time and we're going to look back and ask ourselves why we didn't do more earlier. It also struck me that that's one of the reasons that your work as a young person has got to feel so pressing because like right. seven years from now, you're going to be like 25. Mm, I, yeah. So like, yeah. <laughs> so it's like assuming you did what like people do and like go to college and what it's like, you'd be yeah. three years into your career and mm -hmm. it'd already be too late. Mm -hmm. So y'all have yeah. to act now. Yes. Exactly. So here's, I'm going to sort of back into the intersectionality thing sure. because that's such a massive problem to solve. And because I'm extremely old and I remember the way that like a different generation of people used to message really, really big problems. I had always heard that because massive problems like climate change are so monumental, it's important not to make them seem overwhelmingly terrifying. Mm -hmm specifically climate change, because like it's going to take the whole world. And if mm -hmm. people already feel like a sense of defeatism, mm. then they'll be like, well, 
screw it. We're just going to die anyways. We might as well keep partying. We might as well Mm. keep rolling coal. So why do you think your generation isn't afraid to look the apocalypse in the mouth? You know, I'm going to be honest, like sometimes me personally, I even feel so worried and, um, I do sometimes feel like kind of hopeless almost and just feel like, uh, you know, what I'm doing all this, but is it even going to, to really help in the long run? And I know a lot of other young people feel that way too. And honestly, it's, it's pretty sad that, uh, you know, we just have to, to have those thoughts and kind of have it affecting our mental health even. I do believe though that there is hope and that's what really drives me and drives me to keep keep fighting for change I think when we all have that sense of oh well you know we can't really do this everything's going to turn bad uh so let's just let's just not even try I think when we all have that sense it's it really I mean obviously it stops us from doing anything to actually try to help the problem but it's just not not a good way to to look at it because I think if everybody has that attitude then obviously nothing's going to happen but if you know we shift that mindset to turning that that kind of anger and um like feelings of of doubt and and worries uh if we can channel that into positive action and uh just this very deep kind of um, commitment to to doing everything in our power to help. Then I think that's when we can begin to begin to to really help things get better. Yeah. Do you feel like people are listening around around here specifically, but then maybe at the national level? I think locally, definitely, people are listening. I even know that just like city council, you know, they they know who we are now. <laughs> We've kind of testified at, at some city council meetings and that really has an impact on them and they will remember that forever. And so I think locally we are making difference, um, making people listen. Nationally, I think the issue of climate change is getting more attention because of um, groups like Sunrise. I think we're seeing lots of politicians kind of um, realizing that like these these young people really care about this issue so unless they show that they care about climate change then uh, it's kind of you know trouble for them because the the young people will definitely hold them accountable and yeah yeah, come for them Why does Sunrise feel like we only have seven years to to get to zero emissions? Is there like a basically mm. a, a cliff we're going to fall off if we reach a certain uh, carbon level? Right. So um, I I know there's a specific study. I don't have it on the top of my head, but um, I know that deals with in seven years, if we don't get to a certain level of emissions, then we're basically going to see the effects of climate change get like drastically worse. I kind of put Rosie on the spot there. So I wanted to jump in and give you a little bit of detail and background on the, uh, the carbon clock. So basically the deadline of what's, what's amounted to less than seven years now is based on a 2018 intergovernmental panel on climate change special report outlining how we can kind of must get to a hundred percent renewable energy 
by 2028. And why do we need to do that? To keep the rise above pre-industrial temperatures to 1.5 Celsius. The 1.5 degree Celsius threshold is a threshold that many scientists consider to be a point of no return where the worst climate impacts will almost inevitably happen and may not be reversible even if we sort of get to zero carbon after that date. We may, it may be a point of no return we just can't come back from. And this is obviously speculative science, but based on what we know, unless we make decisive permanent changes to the way we burn fossil fuels, our kids are going to live in a Mad Max hellscape for fuck's sake. So, you know, People who tend to not take climate change very seriously will be like, oh, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. But things are getting clearly worse. This is an opportunity to revitalize our economy in the same, at a time we drastically need it in much the same way that the New Deal did after the Depression. So why wouldn't we want to do that? Especially when we can do it in a way that's like somewhat altruistic and forward thinking in service of the world we all share as opposed to like what drove our economy after the war, the Second World War in the 50s, which was just basically paving America and putting suburbs everywhere. All right, I'm going to get off my horse. Rosie is going to jump back in here to outline what those impacts, to the best of our knowledge, will be. So that's like temperatures rising to unlivable conditions. That's, uh, you know, wildfires getting worse, sea levels rising, the um, droughts getting, getting much worse basically all the effects of climate change just getting to a point where like basically humans living is um it's extremely uninhabitable for for humans it's like a tipping point basically right the second thing i thought about in addition to just like the the different way that you're thinking about this is how it is what you mentioned earlier how inclusive and sort of holistic the way y'all talk about the challenges like Mm -hmm. And it makes sense because if it's like, if this is going to be probably the biggest fight any of us take on in our lifetimes, it has to be a global fight to change it. The intersectionality piece really makes sense, but I was really impressed by how hard you doubled down because it made me think of 2006. Have you seen Inconvenient Truth? Oh, I actually haven't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's actually <laughs> hilarious that you haven't. So <laughs> environmentalism wasn't a thing when I was a kid. I went, I graduated uh, high school in 99. Uh-huh. So I was like 25 when, when Inconvenient Truth came out, okay. I think. He kind of had a thing like your your guys' ticker, mm-hmm. which was like this graph that was just unbelievably terrifying. It was essentially basically like a graph of carbon in the atmosphere over time. Okay. And like with the Industrial Revolution, like it starts going like this. And then after World War II, carbon just goes like this. And it like 2006, it was like a big like flat screen. It was like a really cool like production value thing. But then like he had to extend the screen and get on a ladder because oh. the carbon was like so huge basically since the 40s. And that was the thing that everybody talked about was like, oh my God, it's so bad. This has to be our only, carbon has to be our only focus. Not only, you know, it was like other aspects of like species die off and stuff almost went to the wayside. It was just like, we have to solely focus on carbon. So the movement that came out of that was super focused and that's your focus too. Cause like your, your clock is about ending carbon emissions, but Again, like we've already kind of hinted at you, I was standing at your rally. Kids were talking about jobs. They were talking about government regulation that went beyond carbon or 
like carbon tax or cap and trade stuff. They were talking about unionization rates. They were talking about, like you said, housing justice, you know, obviously environmental justice in the context of people getting displaced. You know, we've got a a relatively large Marshallese population in Spokane and like their home islands are like disappearing after Mm -hmm. being bombed with nuclear testing for 50 years. They're just like go disappearing. We talked about the the guy from DSA talking about how capitalism was the greatest evil in the climate fight and how the search for corporate profits was going to literally kill us all. And it was, you know, framed as an indigenous struggle, a struggle for the lives of all people of color. I think I heard somebody shout out about the Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign, which is about economic justice, like you said. It just resonated with me so much more than Al Gore's messages did. But it also kind of, again, goes against this, like, there's a different part of, like, traditional activism that was, like, if you're not in this specific fight, you don't belong in the fight. So don't come to my climate rally and talk about indigenous rights or don't come to my climate rally and talk about economic justice. So that's literally a 180 from the way a lot of activism was done, say, 10 years ago, even. I feel like I'm begging the question because the answer seems pretty obvious and it seems super smart why you guys are doing it. But like, why why does it feel like it has to be so inclusive? That's a great question. I, I think it really just goes back to, you know, looking at climate change as a problem that is kind of related to all of these other things. Let's just talk about first with like, um, you know, racial injustice and uh, environmental racism, environmental injustice. Historically, a lot of corporations and um, industries have been uh, harming these uh, communities, specifically communities of color, low-income communities. A lot of these communities live with much live in neighborhoods with much higher rates of like exposure to toxic waste facilities, lead poisoning, air pollution. Um, and that's because of these industries that are that are in these communities just um, polluting and kind of disregarding uh, these people and also you know the politicians who are enabling this, no regulations of the industries there. And so, um, in fact, in a lot of these neighborhoods, people have like higher rates of um, cancer and um, other uh, sicknesses and uh, like asthma. And so that is one thing that like I learned about that um, through being in Sunrise. And uh, it just really made me think about like how Exactly, like how these issues are connected, um, not to mention these same communities are going to be hit the hardest by by the effects of climate change, low-income communities especially. And so when people kind of just focus on carbon, 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 and they don't look at, I think, really the, the systems that are like leading to these problems, leading to climate change, leading to racial injustice, economic injustice. When you don't look at that inclusively, if you try to solve the problem, then you're going to kind of still leave out those people in those communities, I think. And um, that's why I think it's just so important to, to look at this issue intersectionally, realize that the same system that is basically leading to climate change getting worse, that same system is is what is, you know, keeping these people uh, in poverty, oppressing them, and just harming not only the planet, but also people. And so looking at that together, I think, is is really important. 
when I even think about you mentioned climate refugees and if like, you know, the southern half of our country becomes unlivable in our lifetime, Mm -hmm. people are going to move north, which I, you know, people are worried about, but it's like not everybody's going to be able to afford to move north. And so it's like those people that are at the margins already and are are, are living next to those, you know, toxic waste facilities, Mm -hmm. living with higher levels of environmental pollution are also going to be the ones that aren't going to be able to just afford to pick their families up and move north to, you know, climates that are still inhabitable. So, and then, you know, there's the geopolitical aspect of like what happens when half of America is not inhabitable, are we just going to invade Canada, you know, (laughs) right? Like to get more land. And so it makes sense to me to think about that in that way. And I, and I also think that the the sort of global perspective on that is shifting Mm -hmm. and that, you know, Bernie Sanders, the squad, and a bunch of young people who are like leading that sort of holistic look, right? Yeah. I mean, does that sound right to you or has that been your experience? Honestly, yeah. Like Bernie Sanders, politicians, yeah, like the squad um, and groups like Sunrise, I think are really changing the narrative kind of of um, the traditional like climate fight, I guess, and really making it apparent to to the larger uh, American population that like you know we need to look at this holistically and um just keep in mind all of these issues that that tie in with climate change it also strikes me that it's not just tokenism is not exactly the right word or like but like back padding where it's like oh hey poor people your fight is really about climate change it's like when when you when you mention inclusivity and and it just feels like it's like no, we have to change the structure of the way we do business. We have yes. to change the structure of how we pay people. We need to solve both the problem of climate and the problem of poverty and the problem of, mm-hmm. you know, racism mm-hmm. across all differences, you know, whether it's expressed as climate racism or economic racism. Mm-hmm. That's how it feels to me anyway. So yeah, how do you hold all those things together when you're in these, you know, meetings and, and trying to organize events like this? How do we kind of address it all together? Yeah, and and keep it from like sort of like breaking up, splintering back apart, I guess. I see, yeah. We really just try to like in in Sunrise Spokane, we really focus on being supportive of of other movements and groups in Spokane. Like, you know, with the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer, Mm -hmm. we did a lot around that. And we just think it's so incredibly important to be in solidarity with with other movements for change and try to like partner together I guess for a more collective like liberation basically and um, I think in meetings and stuff we always think about you know what other initiatives in Spokane are going on right now that we can support like with housing and and racial justice a lot of the things we do not just uh, deal with climate but they are kind of more intersectional sorry for example um we helped with uh it was called oh i don't remember the exact name of the the initiative but it was initiative with city council basically for um housing justice related to housing justice and we uh did like a chalking event outside of city council for that um and yeah you know continuing on moving forward we're just gonna still be in solidarity with with other movements and, and groups in Spokane and kind of always be thinking about like what else is going on in Spokane that, that we can support and, and help out with. 
Was that like the um, the Just Cause Eviction stuff the Tenants Union was doing? It might have been. I think it was. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I just. I don't remember the exact name of the initiative. But yeah, it was something with City Council that they're voting on. Yeah, got yeah. it. It seems like you guys are really behind the the concept and the substance of like the Green New Deal, which kind of is an. Mm-hmm is a, uh, an intersectional look at, you know, it's it's about solving the climate crisis, but also creating a bunch of new jobs and, and, and sort of like rebuilding a working class in a way that like work or just an, rebuilding an economy that works for more people. I sort of realized I was born at the beginning of the, the most recent sort of descent into insane income inequality. So I've really never known anything but that. You obviously have never known anything but that. So that's like one of the things that strikes me is like the younger millennials that I know, I I had like just missed the financial crisis of 2008. I was like a couple years into my career. Okay. And so I'm like the oldest possible millennial, but I kind of missed the worst aspects of the jobless recovery and all the things that really like have hampered my younger friends careers. And I've got to imagine that Gen Z is like feeling and it's theoretical because a lot of you are still in high school. It's like, what is even? It, that's got to feel kind of doubly hopeless mm. in in some way. So it almost seems like the only way to approach that is intersectionally. Like there's, mm. there's so there's like a couple different problems that something like the Green New Deal could maybe two kill, kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, I think the Green New Deal is it's so comprehensive, right? And so it it with specifically the jobs aspect of it, we we think that basically there's so many you know, more climate disasters that will come if we don't do anything. Um, These disasters are going to have a huge effect on just our, like, economy and a lot of the, like, infrastructure that we have right now. And so what the Green New Deal seeks to do is, like you said, have this, this issue of climate change, an issue of, you know, not having enough jobs for people basically kind of combining those so these people who who need a job can look to these programs that the green new deal will create and go to those programs for jobs they can um, work towards creating better infrastructure in our country and like building a better energy grid just helping out with like wildfires and uh, a lot of these kind of environmentally related jobs that we definitely need right now. Those are those are jobs that people who who need jobs and who are affected by the economy becoming more unsustainable. Basically, right. um, they can look to those programs of the Green New Deal uh, to help out. So you just got done with the climate rally around Earth Day. What what's next for Sunrise Spokane? In the in the near future, we're going to continue to hopefully have these kind of rallies and um, maybe do another one in the summer sometime and kind of if there's any like initiative in Spokane locally that we can support. Yeah, support. We're going to try to support that as much as possible. I've also been thinking with Sunrise, we can create kind of I don't know, like a youth program almost um, specifically for younger people and um, like elementary or middle school students, high school students, where these students can really learn about like organizing skills and um, activism 
and they can use those skills in the future uh, and continue to be involved. So maybe something like a summer youth program, I think, um, could be really cool. Yeah, I think we're definitely just going to try to keep having events where people can come and just continue to, you know, make people aware of of our group and what we stand for and try to keep pushing for a Green New Deal, obviously, both locally and nationally. I think that's just so needed right now. So, yeah. I just thought of the question that I had earlier that I kind of spit blanked on. Like, Mm -hmm. like, was your mom there with you at the rally? Oh, yeah, she was. So it seems like your mom's at least supportive. Do you feel like you're getting through to them? Like, maybe even like your uncles and aunts or like, you know, or like your friend's parents. Like, do you feel like they're Mm -hmm. listening to you guys or do they just kind of like pat you on the head and just like (laughs) cute kids? Like, (laughs) well, so as for like my my other kind of family members, um, it's kind of different because they they all live in China so it's kind of like they you know it's it's just so so different they don't really uh, I think they know kind of what I'm up to but they don't really like understand I guess what's really behind it and so but yeah like with my other uh, maybe like friends parents and stuff I think you know overall people are uh, becoming more aware and Maybe they don't necessarily agree with everything that we're saying and like everything that we're pushing for, but they still acknowledge that we we are here and they maybe some of them probably applaud us for for doing what we're doing just because I think for young people like being so politically involved is uh, is so hard and adults seeing that even though they may not agree with everything the young people are saying like they still they still think it's very like a good thing to be doing I think so what what plans do you have for after high school um I am actually planning on going to Columbia University in New York oh wow yeah, I just committed like a week ago, I think. Good public transit. You can have a really small carbon <laughs> footprint in New York. It's true. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I know there's a Sunrise like hub on ca- uh, Columbia's campus, I think. So I think I'll join that for sure. And um, I'm hoping to study political science, I think, or uh, possibly minoring, minoring in history. Uh, and I hope to... I don't know. It's kind of still a very uh, something that can be changed, but I hope in the future I can maybe run for office someday and um, (laughs) be like in government and, and and politics. And if not, definitely still involved in like activism and uh, organizations and organizing work. Yeah. Cool. So don't feel bad if you don't know what you want to major in. I was a math major, and I ended up uh, graduating with degrees in philosophy and literature. So uh, that's fun. Don't you know? Don't put yep. any extra pressure on yourself. Yeah. Do you think that you will want to come back to this area to be a politician, or are you gonna like go toe to toe with Cuomo? I do like Spokane. Um, I just don't know if I want to come back to like live here when I'm older. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I. Yeah, I don't know if like I'll stay over on the East Coast somewhere or or what, but yeah, I don't know. I think um the the running for office thing is like definitely 
possible um on the other hand though like i just i think it is so so difficult and like i almost like don't want to play into the system of like politics that we have right now yeah. that is just so just bad overall <laughs> so like i've just been thinking that about that law and like you know if i actually want to be in the system or just like be out of it like trying to um to push for change that way so yeah i mean a lot of people are rightly skeptical about electoralism in general yeah. and like you yeah know, how much can you change you know can you tear down the master's house with the master's tools <laughs> yeah totally exactly these conversations tend to be pretty heavy and I, but I like to always end with a question about hope. Mm-hmm. There's obviously not a lot to be hopeful about, including the assholes who are driving by the rally, like rolling coal and revving their engines. Oh, yeah. God, I didn't was... even, I, yeah, like, and did somebody yell, like, climate change isn't real or something? Yeah. Oh, my God. And I didn't see who it was, but you oh. know, so like, obviously, there's that, just like trolling, <laughs> trolling on the internet, trolling in real life. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine you wouldn't bother if you didn't have hope. Right. And so like what what gives you hope as a young person sort of staring down a couple of intersecting web of like really, really difficult challenges? Like what gives you hope? Mainly is the other young people around me, actually, and seeing other other young people so passionate and committed about this, these issues. And um, just knowing that like we're kind of in it together, like we uh can can fight together and um yeah we're just we're here and we're dealing with these issues but together we are more powerful and um that really gives me a lot of hope i think what also gives me hope is just seeing kind of um you know there even though there's so many uh horrible things going on um there are still positive good things and so kind of seeing those um and realizing that like little by little things things can get better um that gives me a lot of hope as well i feel like i i almost have to have hope um and the hope sometimes it's hard to find but when i think about the the effects of of not having hope and the effects of everybody kind of just giving up that is what drives me to have hope if that makes sense so yeah. absolutely geez so if that resonates with people and they want to help with sunrise spokane like how can they find you guys yeah so sunrise spokane we are on instagram we are on facebook um and twitter actually on instagram the handle is just sunrise underscore spokane on facebook it's just sunrise spokane i think and twitter is uh, I think it's sunrise underscore Spokane as well. And on our website, just sunrisespokane.org. Definitely reach out if you ever want to get involved or know anybody who gets, who wants to get involved. Um, we are always looking for new members, um, always looking to grow our hub and our movement. So yeah, please reach out if you are interested in getting involved. Rosie Joe, thank you so much for coming on Range. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. There's also a Sunrise Spokane podcast in the wings, not quite ready for prime time. I'll make sure to let people know once that's out and available. Thanks again to Rosie so much for coming on. Her 
enthusiasm was infectious and uh, made my black little heart grow several sizes. Check out sunrisespokane.org to figure out how you can get involved. If you like range and you want to be involved with range more deeply than you potentially are right now, you maybe want to support us monetarily. Keep this free for everyone by uh, giving if you have the means. Range Spokane. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> range Media. God, what is it? Oh, yeah. Rangemedia.co slash subscribe. Rangemedia.co slash subscribe. Thanks to Speak Studios, downtown Spokane, for the recording space. Thanks, as always, to my man, Connor Bacon, for helping with the edits, helping with the recording, engineering, all that stuff. Have a great week, everyone. Enjoy your unofficial start to summer. It is way too hot to be making a podcast at 554 on Memorial Day uh, in an attic that faces west. The Irish Slavic gene pool is incredibly strong, incredibly robust. It's neither my fault nor my ancestors' fault that they just happened to evolve in a place that, you know, never reaches higher than like 65 degrees. So summer is my kryptonite, but I'll come back stronger than ever. You can take that to the bank. Wait, actually, I just had a thought. Even if you don't care about climate change, do it for me, for God's sake. If I if we if we hit this 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold, I'm going to be even more miserable than I am right now, guys. I'm sitting up here schwitzing. I've been here for hours schwitzing, just sweating. If we don't reach these carbon milestones, uh, it's going to get a lot worse for me. So even if you don't care about yourself, if you don't care about your kids, do it for me, for God's sake. All right, let's close with a few parting words from Rosie in the speech that she delivered at Earth Day. I guess it was the keynote. She was the last speaker. So yeah, she gave the keynote at Earth Day this year. Rosie Joe playing us out. Have a nice week, everyone. Bye. And I'd like to leave you with a quote by Grace Lee Boggs, who I really looked up to. And she was a Chinese-American activist who fought for racial, economic, and environmental justice in Detroit. She wrote in her book, The Next American Revolution, Instead of pursuing rapid economic development and hoping that it will eventually create community, we need to do the opposite. Begin with the needs of the community and create loving relationships with one another and with the earth. So let's do just that. Let's move forward with hope and love in our hearts, love for the people around us, love for the planet, and work together towards creating a brighter future for all.